0: Hello and welcome to The Fizzle Show! Alright! Hey listeners, thank you so much for being here. This is The Fizzle Show because most businesses fizzle out. And the question is, what are you going to do when you start to lose interest? What are you going to do when it's like harder than you thought it was going to be? What are you going to do when it doesn't come easily? That's where a lot of the fight for your business is. And we exist to create a community around independent entrepreneurs, indie entrepreneurs, people who are earning a living doing something that they care about. It is possible now more than ever to earn a living doing something you actually give a damn about. And that's what we're into. That's what we're about. That's what people who listen to the show are about. And that's what people at Fizzle.co are about. Earning a living doing something you care about. And today on the show, we've got a little, a couple like... To me, I'm big fans of these guys. All star, uh, all star independent business guys. Okay, they make physical products. All right, solving problems for modern modern man, I would say, modern man. You know, a lot of the times on the show, we're talking about marketing or, or coming up with an idea for a product. or that, There's a lot of things that are similar on the physical end and the digital end and working for customers and stuff like that. But there are some differences. So we wanted to do today on the show was talk with some actual physical product makers to hear what is it like to actually make a physical product. You might be surprised how much is different, but also how much of the important stuff is exactly the same as if you're trying to grow an email list or trying to create a digital product or trying to do whatever, okay? So on the show today, two guests, Dan and Tom from Studio Neat. I'm really glad that they're here to join us. But first of all, Corbett and Steph, can you guys hear me? Can you feel me near you? Hey, everybody. (laughs) Always 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 feel me near you (laughs) and then on the on the uh, as guests here we have dan and tom from studio meet dan where are you calling from Uh, i'm in austin texas austin texas and where are you right now tom uh brooklyn new york brooklyn new york wow and you guys both live in austin but you're just traveling right now tom
1: yeah, yeah. I'm, visit, I'm up here for a wedding and visiting some friends. We we actually started the company in Brooklyn mm. uh, ish. So, you know, back home a little bit. Back but yeah, home. we're both in Austin now. Okay,
0: right. so so give me like a rundown of of like just really really quick and a few sentences. The smallest, Dan, give me like the smallest like explanation of what Studio Neat is. Your guys' company.
2: Okay, uh, we are a two-person company, and we make products for people to buy. That's too short. <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: good. That's good. Um, that, okay, so uh, and that is perfect. That is like exactly the thing I was looking for. <laughs> Thanks for playing right into my pocket here. Um, <laughs> now, what kind of? If you had to categorize, what kind of products you guys end up making, Tom? Like, what would you? What would? How would you describe the kinds of products you guys make?
1: Uh, broadly like, like tools, I think, uh, either tools for creative people or like kind of aspirational. I want to be cool guy, Joe, uh, and do something cool with my smartphone or with cocktails or on my desk. So in general, in even the apps we make, uh, some, something where we feel like we're being, a, like we're tools, um, yeah. making tools. In general, yeah. tool,
0: tool, you guys tools are tools making,
1: making tools? tools. Yeah, <laughs> no. yeah we're, we're a of tools making tools. You know? Yeah, <laughs> was,
3: I'm curious, was the glyph your first product or was that your first big hit?
1: First product and first big hit and unintentional business starter. So, mm-hmm. we Dan and I were just like designers working in New York after grad school and uh, he had the idea of like, hey, this is kind of cool. So we kind of just approached it like we would anything really casually and just like made some sketches, 3D prints. And then we we're like, hey, this is pretty cool. Let We want other people to have it. And uh, so we put it on Kickstarter, which was like a new thing. And it just blew up, and it was like kind of the first Kickstarter project to ever blow up, and so we were surprised. Like every the kind of world was surprised in a way, mm. and so we were like, "Well, okay, crap. I guess we have to like start a business now." So we like came up with the name for the business, and we we're really kind of forced into it. So um, yeah, the glyph kind of started it all, and kind of we went zero to sixty real fast, um, and then since then it's been kind of the same thing. Just ma- ma- you know, coming up with the idea that we feel is cool, that we like, that we want to do, and then uh, trusting that there's people out there who like it too.
3: Yeah, it, for and for people listening uh, who aren't familiar, explain what the glyph is.
2: Yeah, sure. It's a uh, well, it's a, it started out as just a tripod mount and stand for the iPhone four. So this was back in two thousand ten. So it's just a super simple piece of injection molded plastic, and it could, allowed you to put your iPhone. It was on like a just a. It was kind of like just a clip,
0: at, right? It was just like the phone, it like clipped right onto it, the phone. It, it, yeah,
2: it kind of snugged into the corner of the phone. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and it was and then it had the second thing where it was like a it was like a kickstand. Like you could be mm-hmm. on the airplane with the tray down and you'd have your little tiny. I mean, you remember how small those screens are. Corbett still has one. <laughs> right now um it, it, it was just like you know you could watch your little tiny version of the avengers or whatever that you downloaded like a quarter of the movie on because you can't fit the whole thing on there and it would have a little kickstart or kickstand there that like would hold it up at as an angle and now that that seemed like something you just kind of threw into there it must have been or were you like i wish i had an iphone holder that could work on a tripod but then it also did this other thing where i mean that was just like looking can do this and so we should probably make it into it
2: I'm imagining uh, no actually, actually the very first vision for the product was uh, having both of those functions and I think that was the case I'm trying to remember back you know seven years uh, it just seemed like if it was going to be a thing that's holding your phone if the essence of the object was holding a phone then like there, there might be a way to to get it to kind of work in those two basically configurations. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we have since, we've since dropped that functionality. So we've done several versions of the glyph. Uh, and then last year we had a Kickstarter, uh, for basically the fourth version of the glyph and that one for the first time kind of dropped the stand functionality, uh, for two reasons. One is, as you said, uh, The screens are even though the iPhone screens have gotten bigger, like we have iPads now and other things to watch movies where it's maybe not as useful as a function. And we wanted to kind of go all in on the tripod mounting aspect and make kind of this more useful and flexible tripod mount. So in order to do that, we had to kind of ditch the stand aspect. Okay,
0: so we started with the glyph, a simple injection molded thing. You put it on Kickstarter, like, hey, Kickstarter, help us make this product a reality. It was the first sort of like runaway tech sort of big Kickstarter project making almost $150,000. And that was seven years ago. That was before, like, was it like the biggest at the time?
1: It was third biggest ever, yeah, yeah. Okay. And for a long time it was third biggest, yeah. And, okay. it, and and so back then it was a very different world. The Kickstarter world was very different. And yeah, I mean it was it, we got a ton of press because it was like holy crap, like two guys can make a physical product like what is this world that we're living yeah. in now. And we were shocked and everyone was kind of shocked. And so we yeah we got a big boost like it used to just be noteworthy that people did Kickstarter projects in general, um, yeah. and you know now of course the world is completely different. It's like oh you know you raised one hundred fifty thousand dollars on Kickstarter you know no big deal whatever. Um, so yeah it's it's been really interesting seeing that world change around us a little bit because we kind of approach things in a very similar way still. Um, but yeah the the world has definitely changed <laughs> in <Yeah>. that regard.
0: <laughs> so so you made the glyph. And then uh, you came up with a handful of other product ideas, like the Cosmonaut, which was a wide grip iPad, iPhone stylus that was kind of like a fat, wet whiteboard marker, but instead it had just Mm -hmm. the stylus tip that you worked. On on your iPad or whatever, and I remember that as well as then you started getting into. Uh, th- there were other products that started coming, like like cocktail products, like this simple wood tray for doing like a salt rim on a margarita, a and the neat ice kit, which is still fascinating to me. It's a way of making ice, a product that makes ice in your in your freezer that uh, that some of the ice is totally clear, which is which is I remember from the video. You know, let's get real fussy about. Ice. <laughs> Let's get real fussy <laughs> about ice because when you have a very clear ice cube in your cocktail, it really does. It's striking. It's striking. It's something corbin and I really aspire to personally, you know, in our entertaining life. Striking. Yeah. It's, cloudy ice is the worst. Cloud. There's yeah, nothing like cloudy worst. ice, you know. It's, uh, it's actually bubbles in there. Bubbles of air. You guys taught me that. Thank you. Um, so <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad now. That's a thing I know and I think about. So no, thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, then, so the, these. Problems products, these products kind of kept coming. Um, what I'm curious about talking with you guys about today is kind of, you kind of really hit it on the, on the head, Tom. It's this idea of holy crap, two guys can make a physical product nowadays. Do you know what I mean? Like, holy crap, this is possible. And I think there's a lot of people in our audience that would Uh, that might like to try their hand at doing physical maker type stuff. Um, And I kind of want to just do a little bit of a 10,000 foot view at, your process, just today, just right now, now as we're making products. For example, you just launched a new Kickstarter for a notebook that is sort of, it's very unique in that it is designed sort of to have a a panoramic size. It's like, it's wider than 16 by nine. And it's made to exist sort of in between you and your keyboard. So it's not, it doesn't take up a bunch of space. It fits sort of nicely right there. You can be making notes. And you guys did a butt, you got real fussy about paper and about, uh, the grid, the dot grid that you used and about the sleeve that you use to archive these things. You're some of the fussiest guys I know. Right. Uh, uh, and you got real fussy (laughs) with it. And that's already within one day, it was the first day and you already beat your goal by when what's it at right now? What's the, what's the Kickstarter at right now?
1: Uh, 65, I think thousand, something like that. 65,000
0: and your goal was 20 to like, you needed 20 to get to, to, to make the thing, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Got it. Okay. So we live in a world of Kickstarter and let's like, uh, maybe we won't make this necessarily a conversation about Kickstarter. Um, but if, as if it's necessary to come in, because it's obviously played a huge role in the things that you guys have been doing, thinking about that, like, uh, that, You know, kid out there who who is like, I would love to do stuff like that. I want to like ask this question of like, like, how do you become a successful maker today without destroying yourself? Because there's so many traps. Like, where do you see people like falling apart in this? Where have you yourselves almost fallen apart in these processes of making physical products?
1: Yeah, so I have two. I think pieces of advice that we like to give. Uh, one is that it is okay and the best idea to start really small. Yeah. So you know, you go on Kickstarter and you see these projects that like raise a million dollars and do all this crazy stuff, but that is a horrible place to start. And so what's great about Kickstarter is um, it's really easy to limit the scope of what you're doing and be okay with that. So if if I was giving advice to someone who wanted to start making something physical all of the hard parts about making something physical are kind of hidden. It's like logistics, uh, quality control, and the manufacturing. All of these things are really difficult to plan for and learn from the beginning. And it really takes experience. So the best thing to do would be to like come up with an idea for a product where you, if you just sold, if you got 100 backers to do it, you could do it, and it would make sense. And so what that means is, even if you're only making 100 of something, you get kind of the full cycle of how to make something. So, yeah. you get the design process, you get the marketing piece, then you get the hard part, which is like manufacturing, and then even sometimes most tricky is fulfillment. So, you get this full cycle of how this works, and yet there's not a ton of risk necessarily. And it doesn't have to be this huge thing. I think people get caught up in this world of like, oh, I gotta, I gotta have this really complex, I gotta have VC money, I gotta do all this stuff. But really, the cool thing about today, in this modern world we're living in, is you? It's easier and easier to do something. So you know, uh, it's really easy to make a small little product that doesn't require a lot of capital and upfront costs. So starting small and learning with a really small constrained project is absolutely the best thing to do for sure. So, so that's number on. one.
0: Speak, speak for, before you go into number two. Speak a yeah. little bit more about these hidden hidden things. You, men- you mentioned logistics, QA fulfillment. Yep. What, what, what was the others? I think I, I missed a couple of those.
1: Yeah. Well, so the, the thing that's really tricky about physical products is, you know, it's pretty easy to make a 3D rendering of something or even make a prototype yourself and, and have it work pretty well. But really, almost 90% of the work is designing for manufacturing. And often you can't know what those design problems are until you're in the manufacturing process. So for us, there's almost two full phases of design. There's the phase of design where we design our dream product, like what we want it to be. And then once we start talking to manufacturers, and even during the manufacturing process, there's a whole other design process where you're working with the manufacturer to figure out what the constraints are, solving quality control problems. And that whole second design problem or the design phase, you can't do unless you're in production. Basically,
0: you d- you need the feedback from the the like uh, the 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 machinery people
1: to show you guys like yeah. like hey, we can't. Yeah, and often we will know the specification going in, and we'll have the discussion before, but honestly, they don't even know usually until they've been doing it, right? What problems will come up. And so there's this whole other step that people underestimate. You know, see all these Kickstarter projects that fail, and it's usually because they're very complex, and it's really difficult to estimate manufacturing costs because, like for instance, we just did the latest glyph, and we had a $60,000 injection mold. It Mm. costs $60,000 to make the mold, right? But then... In the middle of making, we made the mold, we did tests and then we figured out, oh, there's a material problem we need to change. And that added another four months and a bunch of money to the project. And we know that those kind of things come up. But if you're making a complex product and you don't know that, or you're not expecting those kind of problems to come up. You can get underwater really quickly. And so that's why it's important, I think, to start small and not, you know, jump off a cliff because it's really easy to mess up. Like the largest project ever on Kickstarter is the Coolest Cooler, which raised the most money of any project. And they had a huge, huge problem. Uh, making it for the cost that they promised people to you know that they would mm. sell it for so you know and they even had experience so it's just really tricky it's kind of a different world it's not like software where you can iterate on your own it, it's kind of like a one shot deal in some ways so that's why I think starting small is is uh, super good
0: got it and so what's your and then what's your second point if the if the first point is like start really small it'll give you an experience of the entire sort of cycle of creating something like this. And then from that learning, you can kind of keep ratcheting up and do bigger and bigger ideas. What's your second, second idea?
1: Yeah, the second idea is just kind of an encouragement for young folks. Um, so I think one of the things that was really underestimated if you're like 18 or 22 or something is you have all of this built, baked-in knowledge of you and your peer group and what you and your peer group like and most like corporations in the world are paying millions of dollars to try to figure out the insight that you innately have. And so trust um, trust that feeling you have of like, oh, I'm a young person. I want to make this thing. I know I want it. And even if a lot of maybe older or other people tell you no, trust that because you're a young person, you might have insight into your uh, like into your peer group that just does not exist in the world yet because. Uh, you're in this very unique position where you're kind of this new upcoming generation and just know that you you kind of have this big advantage that other companies literally could not even pay for, right? They're like doing all this market research to try to figure it out, but you just innately have that. And so we approach things very much the same way. We really trust our gut and kind of where that leads us product-wise because we are very similar to the people we sell things to. And so uh you know that works out and i think as a young person you have this very unique advantage like we're already we're like in our mid-30s and we're already old parts right in in terms of uh you know what people like what the kids today like right and so yeah the kids just it just like striking while the iron is hot and and knowing that being young in some ways even though you may have not have a lot of experience you have a lot of like product design insight that uh you can draw on yeah okay Okay, go first. I it have stuff. a
4: question for you guys, kind of along the same lines of what you're just talking about. I'm over here, kind of wondering where are the ideas coming from. So you've done at this point a bunch of different products, the things that you have launched. Has it been you following your own curiosity? Has it been things that customers want? How have you guys decided what to make?
2: Yeah, that's a good question, and it's it's. I think it's starting to shift a little bit as we get uh, a little older and and kind of build out our product offerings. But in the beginning. Uh, is purely just our own kind of intuition and we what we what we say is we kind of just are try to be observant of the world and just look for little frictions that we experience in our own lives um so that i mean that was how the glyph came to be was just like oh i, I got this iphone 4 and the camera on it is really great and i'd like to use it like a proper camera, which means, you know, mounting it on a tripod. So uh, for, for, yeah, for the first several years of our company, it was purely, there was no market research or anything like that. It was just like, Hey, do we think this is a good idea? Does this solve a problem that we have in our lives? Um, I like to say with the, the two of us together, uh, whenever we knew we had kind of hit on an, an idea that was worth pursuing It was like, uh, it's like launching a missile from a submarine where we have to turn our key at the same time where if (laughs) if we both are, are into it and we think it's a good idea, then that was like a really good uh, signal to us that we're onto something. Um, But as I said, as we've gone along, I think we've become kind of more open to, uh, you know, inquiry, uh, you know, ask, you know, kind of interviewing people on what their needs might be or, uh, you know, more open to feedback and things like that. And that's been really kind of an interesting shift for us. And I think it's going to be, uh, beneficial moving forward. So I don't know. We'll see.
0: Got it. Yeah. So, so, uh, and great question, Steph, that idea of like, where do these ideas come from? So I love this, Tom, your guys is kind of two main advice pieces of advice here to, how do you become a successful maker without completely destroying yourself? Well, first of all, you have to start really small because I think your point is really, really well said about like there's all of these important things that live that are that are hidden, you know, especially like just where you kind of zoomed us in on the designing for manufacturing piece of it. Um there's all this hidden stuff like QA and fulfillment and designing for, I mean, the amount of Kickstarter projects I've I've funded or helped I've supported that have had problems fulfilling the orders themselves when it was time. I mean, now it's like, that's like, It's like not even a joke anymore. It's just like, yeah, everybody knows that. Like everybody has a problem fulfilling the order. Like everybody does, you know? It's like there's all of these invisible hidden issues and challenges that are very different from the excitement of like sketching things up in a 3D application and talking with your friends about wouldn't it be awesome if there was like a lava lamp that like instead of like it getting warm, like it got cool. Like, what about that? You know, that's my personal product uh, idea. I, I, know, I was curious because I thought it was a good idea. We can talk, we can talk about it afterwards. Um, so, but like the first idea being start really small because it'll help you experience the entire cycle of this whole thing with, uh, with like, I love that number of just like, if you can find 100 people to buy this thing, then it's worth it to do it just so you learn the experience of doing the whole thing. And then that second is like so killer. I mean, no matter what, I'm always thinking about what are the similarities between like a physical product company and a digital product company, um, or even, you know, customer service type business or client services business where it's like, and this is what your second one hit on this idea that you, you have got like what you, when you see something you wish existed in the world, there might be something there. You know what I mean now? And now there's a lot of there's a lot of people who've started up businesses or, or fantasized about their business around you know a lava lamp that got cool instead of warm like that like is like hey Terrence that's not necessarily a very good idea like I don't I don't know if anybody's <laughs> gonna find that valuable <laughs> okay like I don't even think you can find a hundred people who would think that's a good idea
1: <laughs> but it's like I think well be the tri- so here's the trick yeah the trick is not yeah. to oh hey here's my wouldn't this be cool it's oh, there's actually really pain in my life like from this or real frustration. And this is actually a solution that's actually providing value. Like that's the trick is, is it truly actually valuable to you? Or is it just, are you caught up in how cool it is, right? And there's a a gulf of difference there.
0: Yeah, so what have you guys learned about that?
1: Uh, I think a lot of it is um, that like, turning two keys at once thing. So mm-hmm. th- they'll often be the case where one of us is just excited about an idea because we, we have f- like sketched some clever solution to some problem. Yeah. And the thing we're in love with is the cleverness and not the value. Totally, And the other person isn't as invested in that cleverness. And so they're like, yeah, that's kind of cool, but is it really needed or is it really useful kind of thing? And so, um, that I think that's, it's, it's, it's hard, like especially if you're a person who's like inventing and making and designing, it's really easy. I do it all the time to get really overexcited about like a material choice or something clever. Yeah. And, yeah. and honestly, people often don't buy products for cleverness. Sometimes they do, but usually it's because you've told some story where they see some, they see some value in it. Maybe that's just like a valuable feeling or like it's a tool that helps them do something. But I think it's, it's easy to deceive yourself. And that's when it's really valuable to either have other person to, to bounce it off that that can be honest with you Mm -hmm. or like, you know, a partner or a series of partners that can, that can kind of dispel some of that cleverness.
0: Yeah. Okay. I really like this, Dan, I want to pitch it over to you. This, this difference between cleverness and, and value. Like, what does that make you think? Like, what have you learned about that? What does that make you think about? Because I feel like that's like a really, really important point.
2: Yeah. Um, hmm. Uh, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I guess just to elaborate a little, like, I think being two designers, uh, it's very easy to uh, just be precious about things or, um kind of value the wrong thing. So like Tom was saying about like, Oh, a really nice material choice. And it's like, well, it turns out like that is not helping solve the problem. It's just a nice thing. Um, a lot of, you know, like the, uh, a lot of the criticism, like Johnny, I, for example, gets, is like, Oh, everything's like too symmetrical or it's like satisfying this like designer tick rather yeah. than solving the problem. Yeah. Um, and so I think we've, uh, I've certainly kind of become more cognizant of that over time and just become really excited about like serving people basically like serving their needs and solving the problem rather than being kind of overly precious about um you know the things that don't necessarily help them with their problems.
0: Yeah. No, I think cuz the reason why I ask so much about that is <sighs> is because it just seems like so much of my own creative, creative work has gotten trapped in that very same spot. Like this is not something that's specific just to like being a physical product maker. This I, is something that's that like that all of us who, who try to, ma- who, are, who are making things have to deal with, you know, because when I think of cleverness, I guess I think of a little bit like, like me being valuable, you know, instead of like, yeah, the pro- it is, yeah, what are you going to say? What, what, anything more to well, say on that, Tom? It's, to,
1: it's totally, I think it's totally the problem of the expert. So I I, or I remember when we were having the Glyph, the first one manufactured, you know, the, the iPhone 4 had come out. And, you know, from a industrial design point of view, the iPhone 4 is like uh, an amazing, an amazing product. And I remember being at our manufacturers and showing them the phone. And the manufacturers, because they do tooling and injection molding, were just completely in love with the chamfer and like with the edge and how tightly it fits and all this minutia. Yeah. And I think whenever you become an expert at something or the more expert you get, the more you notice these little details that yeah, it's fun to geek out and nerd out about that, but no one else in the world cares. <laughs> yeah. like almost no one besides dorks care that the chamfers on the iPhone are perfect, right? And so it's really easy to get wrapped up in that stuff as a designer or the more expert or the more in tune you get with those details, you feel like you start to value that stuff more than what it's doing for people. And so it is really difficult to step back and be really honest with like, what are you actually doing? Like, hey, designer, like, what are you actually doing? Are are you really just fussing about this material or whatever, or manufacturing process? Or like, are you actually providing value? Mm. Um, And, you know...
2: Yeah, and I would would modify that a little bit to say, not to say that nobody cares about the details and they're not worth fussing over because they totally are. The mistake is thinking the details are the thing rather than the details. Yeah. 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 They're just the, they're just the details. Uh, yeah. It's almost like, I remember
0: hearing things like from Dieter Roms talking about, well, it's the, it's what's invisible in the design that is that makes it so good. It's like the stuff that the consumer, yeah. The consumer doesn't have to know about or think about this, that, and the other. And that's called good design is that
1: it just does what it's supposed to do. Um, I feel like we're doing our best work whenever we start a project with a complex thing and it gets simpler and simpler yeah. and less fussy and less fussy. And so this notebook that we just made, uh, the be- from the very beginning it was pretty complex. And you know we actually were able to send out beta versions to people as we were developing it. And it just made us get simpler and simpler and simpler. And then we arrived at this place where it is extremely simple, but um, it's Nice and just it's like just enough, nice, right? And yeah. so um, not only do we really value like simplicity like from that design perspective, but the thing that is like really valuable is that simplicity then cascades through the whole manufacturing process. So like uh, if we as designers make really like value simplicity and make simple, Material choices and manufacturing processes. That means the thing is easier to manufacture. Yeah. Uh, that means that assembly is easier. That means that usually like customer service and support is simpler and fulfillment is simpler. And so all of these little decisions that we make at the very top, at the very beginning, mm. cascade throughout the whole process. And so we had to be really careful when we're in that design thinking role that, like, okay, what does this mean down like all through all these steps? What is it gonna mean if we you know, decide to make the thing in two colors versus one or use this weird material that might be hard to source or hard to get a good quality control on. And so that, that arriving at that simplicity always feels super good because we know um, that hopefully the whole, the rest of that process will be less painful. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. No, totally. Okay, so hold on. Let me pause for a second and read Freshbooks ad. Freshbooks is small business accounting software designed for small businesses, especially for all you freelancers out there. I know there's a lot of you listening here. It helps millions of service based business owners make everyday invoicing and accounting easy, fast, and secure. Now, Freshbooks has been redesigned from the ground up uh, in the last few months. So if you haven't checked it out in a while, you probably should check it out again. Here's one of the great features that it has inside of FreshBooks, cash flow tracking. Oh, I mean, just cash flow tracking. Just listen to that name, dear freelancer. You hear that? Cash flow tracking, don't you wish you had that? I bet you have no idea what that even means, right? But all the little details about cash flow are kept in one place, so FreshBooks knows exactly what invoices you sent, when you sent them, who's paid you and who owes you what. FreshBooks is offering everyone who listens to this show a month of unrestricted use for all the listeners here at The Fizzle Show right now when you go to freshbooks.com slash fizzle and enter fizzle in the how did you hear about us section. Our thanks to FreshBooks for supporting independent business and The Fizzle Show. Okay. So, speaking of this notebook that you guys just made, can you give me a little bit of like an overview of the process? Because I love what you're saying, Tom, about this idea that that it started out complex and then over time it got it got more sort of it got simpler and simpler. It got more. It's, I almost think about it as more essential and more essential. Because the same thing happens for me when I'm writing, uh, when I'm making a course, or when I'm making a sales page, or when I'm just writing a blog post or something like that. It's that necessary refinement where I'm allowing myself to really think about what this thing truly is. Now, to me, that's like, life is about that. Like I love, like, like my, as a creative, that's what I do more than anything else. That's when I, I love the way you said that Tom it was like, we know we're doing good work when that's what it looks like. It's getting kind of like closer and closer or deeper and deeper to the essence of what this thing really is or needs to be. Um, so can you Dan like give me a sense of of the process of coming up with this product in sp- particular and maybe we can use that as like as like this this sort of like overview on here's what it looks like to make a physical product and come from idea to sort
2: of to to delivery in some ways. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh yeah, and this one was uh, like I was alluding to earlier a little bit of a different uh process than our other products where I think we're just like, hey, we should make a notebook. <laughs> like it wasn't uh, you know, oh I there's this like problem that needs to be solved by this notebook, but it was like we think this would be fun and we think if we kind of stew on it for a long enough time, we could come up with something that's pretty interesting and unique. Um, so that's basically how it started. And, uh, we, like I mentioned earlier, we kind of, you know, have friends and and Slack groups and stuff where we could kind of, uh, kind of survey people and see what kind of notebooks they use and what they like and what they don't like. So from that perspective, it was, uh, quite a bit different than other products we've worked on. Um, and then it was just, uh, you know, again, listening to our own intuition where it's like, oh, I like, you know, I like this about this notebook, but. Um, I don't really like this and um thinking about, you know, material choice and all these things. And we kind of went pretty far down a path that is not at all what um what Panabook ended up being. It was just more of kind of like a regular notebook with some kind of nice things about it. Mm-hmm. Um and we I mean, we had a prototype of that. Well, I think we even had some like initial <laughs> quotes from uh printers. Uh and it just, it didn't quite feel like it was enough. It didn't quite feel like it was a product yet. Um,
0: okay, hold on, let me stop you there. So you're saying in the process of doing sort of some research, I'm sure you got a bunch of samples and uh, of, of other notebooks and you're hearing, you said you're like hearing from other people about what they're using, right? That kind of led you to the path of, of making a notebook or of designing a notebook that was fairly just like, a regular notebook, like you would imagine uh, that, w- but with like, you know, details with, with, you know, the papers made with this, it has this kind of grid. It's it X, Y, and Z. Is that right? It,
2: exactly. It was like the studio neat notebook where there was kind of nothing really unique about it other than our uh, kind of aesthetic preference laid upon it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So uh, it was, it was essentially kind of like a moleskin style and size notebook, but with, you know, Different material choices and different details and stuff, but it wasn't anything like Panda Book, which is kind of like a wholly different uh, concept. Yeah. yeah. Um. And so yeah, that's kind of where we started. So
1: yeah, go it ahead. all comes down to story. I mean, it all comes down to story. So I remember being in that spot where we had we had made our guesses and made our like, oh, I want to do this, I want to do this, and we've kind of arrived at something, but it felt off. It kind of felt the feeling that I think we both had was like wait, should we be doing this? Or like, why should this exist? Like, are we just kind of like, you know, being all ego-y and stuff? Mm-hmm. And that's happened a couple of times with other projects where it's just kind of like, we, we kind of have some inklings about what we want it to be, but we're kind of swimming around and the ideas are like, not really clear. But then all of a sudden, one of us will have an insight, right? And that's how our video, our marketing videos start. Where it's like, hey, we made a notebook. Here was the insight. Yeah. And as soon as that story and that and that insight locks in, then we're really ready to go because we can then, we know how to make decisions, right? We know yeah. how to, to do the trade offs. But if we don't have that core idea, that core thing, we're kind of just swimming around and collecting information. And often you need to do that, but as soon as you have that insight, that's when we kind of hit the ground running. And so for this, it was a notebook for your desk, a, a notebook that fits in between you and your keyboard, right? And that, that is what the whole product is built around. And the great thing about that is, If, if you start from that and it stay, and the process stays true to that idea, your marketing becomes very easy because all you're doing is just telling that story. And that's what people are buying. Like if we've done our job as designers and that idea is clear for the product, it makes that idea clear. Then all we have to say is, Hey, here's the idea. Do you have this problem? Okay. Here's a thing that we made that tries to address that problem.
0: Okay. I think that's really fascinating. Cause it's exact, it's, it's like the same in, in any kind of business is that exact thing you're talking about right there. Like I so resonate with this idea of, uh, of, of like, I'm doing some research to make the best version of X and it just looks and it becomes like an, you know, a, a, a notebook that looks like any other notebook is just with some aesthetic details that we decided to look like this instead of like that, you know? Um, yeah, Like we picked orange, we picked orange and this is what the grid looks like. Oh, we made these, like these dots on the grid darker than other dots so that you can like, it because it, it draws a perfect, you know, iPhone square or whatever. Right. Um, th- I could totally picture getting that point. And like you said, Tom sort of just knew we were sort of swimming around, which is new. It was like, eh, is this really what we want to be doing? This doesn't feel, I, I mean, I, in my own experience, tell me what you guys, if, you, if you've if you learned anything about noticing that, because in my own experience, it's a little like, yeah, it doesn't feel like it's quite enough of a thing yet, but because I've been pushing myself to make this thing, I'm not being honest with myself about the fact that it feels that way. Do you, do you know what I mean? And then there's this moment where you kind of accept that, I don't think this idea is quite special enough or unique enough. And that's where you're saying you have this insight. Like, oh, there's the story. Like, it's going to fit between you and your laptop or whatever. Um, and that story, because for me as a marketer, that's that sells itself. Because all of a sudden, I don't know of any notebook that was ever made to do that. You know what I mean? So, like, I don't know. As you're saying that, I'm just really kind of clear. I'm just, just restating how important is that thing you just said, this idea that it's all story. It's all the story. And for me personally as a creator, no matter what the thing I'm creating, if I'm sold on the story, everything's different. And I love it in the, in the physical product space, you're like, yeah, that changes every, that becomes the thing that, the, it's almost like there's a purpose to the product. For me, when we write, when we make a course, we always start with like, what does the person walk away from this course with? Like, what's the hard value? What's the tangible walk away from this course? Now you know how to do X or Y or Z or all three right? And starting with that means, all right, so this needs to, def- it just needs to, this notebook needs to do this thing really, really well. As soon as you go, the story is fitting between me and the notebook. It's like, or me and the, and the laptop or the keyboard, it's all of a sudden like, okay, it needs to not screw that up. And I'm wondering like, like, is that, has that become like an ascent? I, I don't know. To me personally, it feels like that has to be an essential thing in a product. Is that right?
2: Yeah, that it has a marketing message?
0: Not just that it has a marketing message. I mean, yeah, that too. That that's your like unique selling proposition. It's your uniqueifier. fire. It's your it's whatever. But like as the maker itself because I'm kind of switching gears between between being a marketer trying to sell that product and being the creator who's trying to bring that product to market. To like to, to actually create it itself Mm -hmm. you know and and i know like tell like i don't know dan what was your experience of that of that insight like what was
2: that like for you uh i mean it felt really good (laughs) it was like a relief kind of like tom tom described it really well it really does feel like you're just kind of swimming around and not able to grab hold to anything yeah and then once we had that insight it was like, oh, finally, like it feels like something's clicking into place where it was like, okay, we can, we can hang our hat on this and, uh, kind of work from there. And it informs, you know, the design decisions and the, like the marketing immediately kind of snaps into focus where it's yeah. like, oh, okay, we can, we can do this. This is the main point. And then we kind of have these, uh, other details that kind of feed off of that. And so it, it always feels really good when we kind of, um, when we kind of land on that, I, I remember the neat ice kit was kind of the, uh, a very similar uh, process mm. where we knew we wanted to make a, you know, a thing for making clear ice at home. And it was just lots of swimming around and, and lots and lots of freezer experiments. Uh, <laughs> and nothing like was four really, months. Yeah. It was, it was a really long and frustrating process And we, you know, we almost threw in the towel a few times. And then for that one, we had this insight of like, Oh, you know, it, it, Maybe it needs to be like more of this kit for making these different types of ice. And th- the idea that's like, we're having a, r- a real hard time separating the career the clear portion from the cloudy portion, yeah. maybe that's actually integrated into the product as like part of the process and becomes this thing that you do that's like kind of fun and, and interesting. Yeah. Um, and so that was the, the exact same feeling where it's like, oh, finally, like this is this like clicked, snapped yeah. into place and it kind of makes sense now.
0: It's like you guys are actually expert marketers. That's what you've learned. <laughs> it's really, yeah. it's like you, you've learned that like it, it, has to, it has to be a literally coherent story. Mm -hmm. Like you were like the product, I could picture the clear, the, the neat ice kit, not changing much from, from, you know, because basically what happens folks at home for the folks at home, you have this real like thickly insulated ice thing that is like sort of, you know, two inches by two inches, uh, and then by like six inches tall or whatever. Right. And so the bottom edges of it, like the air from the, from the bottom actually slowly works its way up through the ice. I've got that right. It's the bottom side. That's clear, right? No, the top top side. So the top ends up getting clear. Okay, got it. So one of the yep. sides basically has no little air bubbles in it, and over time, uh, it, it like completely clears out of the air bubbles. But but those air bubbles go somewhere. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Or the 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 <laughs> so one half of it is cloudy, one half of it is clear, and it was just the marketing story that it's like, and it makes two kinds of ice that made you finally go, yes, this works now. Like. That is a, that is a reason to use this thing that it, it, cause otherwise you're, you're sitting there going like, why is only half of it clear?
2: <laughs> do, you, do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it was, it was also that, you know, we were like doing research and, and looking up all these videos and stuff and any bar that has clear ice, uh, is basically, uh, taking a huge block and carving it down into, uh, you know glass size pieces of ice that can actually be consumed yeah um and so it was like oh we're basically just doing like a mini version of that where the the person who uses the the ice kit like has this ice chisel and they're breaking the ice and they're kind of doing just a small at-home version of what the pros are doing anyways yeah so once we got that kind of story it was like oh this is this is pretty cool yeah, that's so fussy. I'm
3: I'm curious, do <laughs> you mind if I uh, switch gears a little bit and yeah. ask some questions about the overall business? I'd, I would love to know, to get a sense of how many ideas you've had overall, and then how many of those have moved into the design process, how many into the Kickstarter phase, how many into the production phase, and then how many ultimately become what you would consider a financial success for the business?
1: Let's see. So uh, we have lots of ideas I don't mean, I don't know what percentage end up moving forward, but I mean, probably not even half. Um, you know, we have lots of ideas and usually they fail immediately as soon as like one of us texts it to the other one. <laughs> usually, if the other person's like, mm, I don't think so, <laughs> it doesn't happen. Sometimes one of us will keep pushing an idea be like, no, 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 seriously, like consider it in this way. Um, but yeah, a lot of times that's the first filter and that cuts off most of the stuff. Um, then the next phase is really like, okay, well, what would we pay for something like this? And is there a way that like we could make it for that amount? You know, like is it? Does it seem possible? Does it seem to like fit the scope that we like know how to make things? And and that's a trickier one. But once we kind of get through there, um, I would say almost all the products that have passed that test uh, have become physical products. There's a couple notable exceptions. So we had a big Kickstarter. Like our boat, our most ambitious product to date. We like designed it, took seven months to go through like this whole process, put it on Kickstarter, and it failed. And so uh, that was one that like definitely did not happen, and we would never made it. But we spent a lot of time designing it, and that was really like a like product market fit thing. Um, and then in terms of like com- like things that we've made that have had some commercial f- like flops, uh, we've made a couple apps that just we were maybe critical successes or that we really liked making, but they just didn't make very much money for us. So we've had two or so of those. Um, And then we've had a couple physical products that, yeah just didn't make very much money, didn't get much traction. And I think that's a lot of, it it comes from just a a mismanagement of this thing we're talking about, which is like, is this thing actually making value, like creating value? Like, is it actually doing its job or was it just something that we just kind of threw out there and did? And so, um, I know that's not a very good... I, I would say we probably have like 15 or so products or 20 products in general. You know, uh, maybe three or four are kind of... We're, we're, we're flops, kind of, and they're gone.
3: Mm-hmm. Okay, okay.
2: Yeah, and, and the- I think... I, I Just real quick, I think the apps specifically are kind of interesting in their own right because there's like this additional uh, criteria of just like understanding the business and the economics of Mm -hmm. that type of thing so like i would say our apps are if i'm allowed to say i think they're good (laughs) uh and i think they're useful they're critically acclaimed people like them like they basically uh solve the problem that we set out to solve and people like them but the thing they're lacking is uh i guess like an actual a business, business strategy or like <laughs> yeah. uh, just butting up the real against the realities of kind of the app marketplace. Um, so that's, that's kind of a reason that they are not uh, a financial success. That's kind of like this additional thing that we have to consider for that type of product.
3: Mm. And for, for people listening who maybe have an idea, maybe have started designing it in some way and thinking about how they would sell it. How do you go from that point to launching on Kickstarter or somewhere else and having a physical product, like how do you find the manufacturer? How do you make sure that you can build it for a certain price? How do you refine the design so that it's ready to be produced?
1: Very difficult. Uh, Well, some of that's very difficult. So, it is pretty difficult without a lot of experience to kind of be able to quickly assess how much something costs to make because sometimes a little design tweak will make all of the difference in the world um, so that's difficult but just the way to we solve that problem is um, we basically I just we Google uh, like you know how to do X and we find a manufacturer via Google that does that and when I call them up and I might send them a sketch or might send them send them a drawing and be like, hey, we want to make this thing. Do you guys do this? Would it be expensive? Like, what's the ballpark? Like, how much would it cost? And basically, we start building what we call the bomb or bill of materials. And so it's kind of like just a spreadsheet list of like, you know, this is what this thing, here's all the parts this thing needs. Here's what they cost. Here's what packaging will cost. If there's assembly, how much assembly will it be? And so you're kind of kind of triangulating in on that process. So the first the first round of that will be like very rough, like, we don't care if the estimates are off by like 40 or 50%. Like, it's just very rough ballpark. Like, hey, like, you know, what is this like? And it's actually difficult to get manufacturers to give you a ballpark. They want to be really specific. But you can kind of usually be like, hey, you guys make these kind of parts. Like, what's the range? Like, are they $10? Are they $5? $2? What's the order of magnitude kind of? So we kind of, we rough in that. And if it seems like the bill of materials is going to be, such that we could sell it for a like an adequate profit margin the and and that 's to a retail price that we feel like is good, then we 'll move on and keep refining it and so the entire process of the design process is goes hand in hand with refining that bill of materials so anytime we 're making a design decision we're we 're thinking about that bill of materials and it 's always going back and forth if, mm. if you say if you design your perfect dream thing and then at the end you 're like, okay, tell us how much it costs uh, that you're usually going to be in for some pain because you'll do all this design decision, all these you know, processes, and then the manufacturer will come back and be like, well, if you would just make this little tweak, uh, it might cost a quarter of the, of the price. And yet that little tweak makes all the difference. So it might be the detail you're in love with, right, or something. So mm. it's, really, it's, it's a really hard process, but uh, you, know, having it really, you really benefit from having experience, but also working with the manufacturer, and they're used to doing this, um, but working trying to find out from them like what is the easy thing to do what's a hard thing to do and and honestly googling manufacturers and just cold calling them and asking for an engineer and just talking with them like works like that's that's how it that's how we do it mm. and it's great because the person who's making your thing they give you the advice and because they're very they're specialists in making like say a wood, a turned wood part or injection molded plastic They really know what's easy and what's hard, and if it's easy, it's cheap, and if it's hard, it's expensive. And it's, you know, it's pretty easy actually to just use Google and then call people.
4: Mm.
0: Yeah, Corbett, does that satisfy
3: your uh, your inquiries, my friend? (laughs) Yeah, that's good. I just I just want to you know get a sense for people. I I was also wondering what's the likelihood that you uh, you know set a price for something, you you do this, um, build the materials, and sell the thing, pre-sell it on Kickstarter. And at the end of the day, you end up with a product that costs you significantly more, maybe because of manufacturing challenges or fulfillment or something. What's the likelihood that you go through this entire process and it ends up costing you more than you bring in?
1: Low because we're very aggressive with profit margins. So um, we, we, from the very beginning, we always want to have like a 4x markup or more. So uh, say it, say something. We say we sell it for $80. We want, it, we want it to cost us $20 to make. Um, so, you know, like four times, 400%, um, or maybe even more. And what that does is it gives us tons of wiggle room. If if we were designing a product with like 10% margins where we, we sell it for 100 but it costs us $90, that is big trouble in little China because we aren't experts at anything we make and, and we haven't done it a ton. And so we don't know how to squeeze all of the lim, lemon juice out of the lemon, right? We don't know how to be super efficient. And so for small businesses like us and starting out, having a huge profit margin is very valuable. And, and a lot of people who aren't haven't made things before or aren't involved in retail will think, what, 400%? That's crazy margins. But it's actually not. So if we ever try to sell something in retail, they want to pay 50% of the retail price for whatever you sell them. So say, you know, we're going to Crate and Barrel, we make a product. They're, if they're selling it for $100 in their store, they want to buy it from us for 50 and so, right there, fifty percent is you know so is what you need for sure to make any money. And then we want a lot of wiggle room there. So that's another little thing: is if you're starting out, it's something new to you. Um, a don't enter a marketplace that's super crowded and super commoditized where there's a lot of competition and thin margins because you're not going to win. You're a little company, so go to a, do something where you, you can have a big margin. And you have lots of wiggle room um, because then you're not going to get burned. So that's how we've stayed away from kind of like worrying about nickel and diming throughout the whole process um, because we have we have that wiggle room.
3: One, one last question for me. Uh, you guys are both trained as designers. Is that right? Yep. And how did you learn all of this manufacturing, physical product sort of stuff? Was it all... On the job, or d- had you worked in some physical product environment before?
1: It was all not on the job or in a physical product environment. It was all learned by doing. <laughs> so neither of us were trained in like industrial design. It was very like 2D design, some kind of fabrication architecture stuff, but not like industrial design at all. And the way we learned was by starting slow and asking a bunch of questions. So, mm. you know, we do all of our own video. We do all of our own website. We build, do our own product photography, everything. And the reason why we do kind of have our do-it-ourselves attitude is because we learn kind of what it takes to make something. And so whenever we are starting a new project we don't know what to do, we're, we've become confident that we can figure it out. And, and we have a process where we just literally ask a bunch of questions to experts. And it's pretty easy to start kind of triangulating, you know, how to do things. And one of the really great things about having this kind of DIY, do-it-yourself attitude is um, once you know how to do it, it's much easier to hire someone to do it for you, right? Mm -hmm. So because I know, we know the manufacturing lingo, we know how to talk about how things are made, it is much easier to talk to manufacturers. Or if we ever wanted to hire a professional photographer to do product photography for us, because we've done it ourselves, we know what we want. We know what's possible. We know how to communicate what we want. And so I think it's really valuable, especially when you're starting out to try to get as many skills as you can, because then it's just going to serve you down the road when you start outsourcing or hiring people. Um, because you know, you know, kind of how it works and like what to do. And Dan and I, I think when we talk about our education, we have been really fortunate to just have a really general design education. And for us, what that means is, we've learned how to approach and solve problems and Mm -hmm. that's all it is. So, you know, we don't have some deep technical understanding about anything, but we just know how to kind of get our arms around a problem and circle around it and, and kind of figure out what's most important and then how to ask the questions and how, and how to tackle it. And so, and the only way to do that is, is through experience, you know, it's, it's doing project. Like we had just our whole undergraduate and graduate careers were just doing projects, making things. And so the more, one of the reasons why starting small is really great is your world changes once you start interacting with the world of manufacturing and this big like industrial machine process. You, you it kind of opens your eyes uh, once you start interacting with that. There's a whole there's a whole world of problems and lingo and it's like PO and invoice and, and RFQ that you have to learn and and so once you start kind of playing with manufacturers, it kind of changes your mindset on things. And you can do that on the really small scale, and that's what's great is you can start to kind of uh, get your feet wet in that stuff. And you don't, you don't have to step straight into like, uh, uh, you know, a big project. Just like there's this, so whenever we give talks, we have this slide this, that goes along with this DIY thing. And it's a Stanley Kubrick, Kubrick quote. And Dan, you can probably say it better than me. Um, but it's basically, it's like the, the, the Kubrick quote is like, what do I tell like young filmmakers? It's simply to grab a camera and make a movie. Like, that's the best way to learn how to do filmmaking. Mm. And we really take that to heart. I mean, that, that's what we do. Like, we, we do the stupidest thing in the world, which is for every new product, we make a new supply chain, which is the opposite of what you're supposed to do from a product business point of view. <laughs> yeah. But what it, lets that, what it lets us do is we're very horizontal and we know how to do a lot of different stuff. So every new product, it's like, well... We, ha- we know we want to do molded foam. How the hell do we do that? I don't know. Let's start Googling. And we literally spend days Googling companies, make a list of the companies, and then we call them and just have a conversation about like, how do you do this? Like, here's what I'm looking at. Here's a sketch. And we don't worry about like IP or like, you know, NDAs or any of that stuff. It, they don't want to steal your idea. They want to make your thing. And so we just kind of be honest and ask questions. And it, it really helps to get input from manufacturers as soon as possible.
0: Hmm. I love that. Steph, anything else to add here as we we come to a close, as we're thinking about fizzlers who are thinking about becoming a maker or would like to or, or something like that? Or do you feel like that pretty well covers it?
4: I think that pretty well covers it. I have one last question, and I'm sure this could be like a whole separate episode. So maybe you guys could just give kind of like your quick thoughts or what comes to mind first. But the last thing that I don't think we touched on as much that people listening might be wondering about is the Kickstarter part of this. So especially for your first product, you know, the first one you ever did was the third biggest ever. And you raised all this capital. What quick ideas can you offer people who are interested in in the quick or, uh, quick Kickstarter side of things where, you know, is it more about that story that you guys were talking about? Is it about going deep into your Rolodex? Like, is it a combination? What should people focus on when they're trying to get that reach in the initial stages of doing something like a Kickstarter?
2: Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, just from our personal experience, the thing that we had, uh, that was kind of allowed our original, uh, glyph campaign to blow up the way it did is we had basically a single dude link to it on a super popular blog. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so, uh, what we kind of say is there is o- almost certainly uh, a, a community uh, surrounding whatever product you're making. And hopefully if it's like a product you're interested in and passionate about, you're already part of that community. And so you kind of should already know uh, uh, you who know, the Oprah it, is. Yeah, who the Oprah is basically. We talk about Mm. like kind of the Oprah book club where she she decrees that a book is in her book club and then it immediately sells out. Like basically the exact same thing happened to us, where in this case it was John Gruber who's an Apple blogger for people who don't know, and his audience is uh, perfectly uh, aligned with the, you know, the iPhone related product that we were making. And so it was a perfect, uh, a perfect fit. And so, yeah, it's like this, this community that you're hopefully already part of, like you should know the people to reach out to, to help, you know, basically act as a megaphone um, for your product. So that's been huge for us and it continues to be. Mm.
1: But it, it is true that if the story's not there and it doesn't resonate, even if you get that blogger linking or whatever, it's not going to do it. So you have to have that story, and, and really, it should be that if, if this person is like you know, a, like a maven blogger person, they're really into their subject, uh, it's probably true that you don't have to know them, you don't have to have this relationship. But if you're providing something that they're really into that doesn't exist and it's really solving a need for them for them, they'll be excited about it. So don't be afraid of, you know, just reaching out to the biggest fish in the pond and being like, "Hey, we made this thing." Uh, we think you'll like it. And then if it's exciting and it's going to get traction and they like it, then it's probably going to get traction and go forward. So Mm. that's when we know, that's when we're kind of validated in our product is if the people that we respect and are really into their field like it, then we know that, you know, it works for us because we make niche products that, you know, are for like niche audiences. And so, yeah, finding and following and knowing that market and those mavens is, is super valuable. Mm. Mm. I love that it. That seems
4: like a really, a really helpful takeaway. I think is that if you're going to go and make something like this, trying to, I would, I feel like that is a worthy step for people to kind of note. If you're going to try to create a product, is making a list, a short list of who are the influencers that could, that I could reach out to as I go through this process. I, I hadn't thought about that part. That's really interesting.
1: I love Yeah, it. we we often think about we're making the product for them. Like, oh, like we're making this product for John Gruber. Like if he likes it or he's going to like it, it's a really good touchstone for us because we know we have a similar taste in all this stuff. And so it's nice to have those kind of external key people that you can also think about in your orbit beside yourself.
0: Mm. Yeah. Dan, Tom, thank you guys so much for joining, man. Thanks for coming on the Fizzle Show. Thanks for having yeah, us. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having us. You got it. Steph, Corbett, I, I mean, I'm not even going to say thanks to you. You, like, you have to be here, so... Thank I guess just thank you for I guess you're just here you're just here that is episode two hundred and twenty three of the Fizzle Show y'all if you want to get show notes and links for this episode go to FizzleShow.co slash two two three and you can also get some of our free guides that are there here's an iTunes rating from Azakel in Australia who says if you like Peck Flynn you'll love these guys their advice is so non douchebag common sense smart. Encouraging that you can't help but feel uplifted. On top of that, they feel like family, like your crew. Thank you so much, Azakel. Our goal here, dear listeners, is to help you make progress on your week, on your business every single week. And when you leave us an iTunes review, it helps us to do that. So if you haven't yet, click, uh, click the Fizzle Show in your iTunes, something, something, and write us a little review. I'd love to read it out on the air. And in closing, here here is that Stanley Kubrick quote again. Kubrick's Kubrick uh, quote again. He says. Perhaps it sounds ridiculous, but the best thing that young filmmakers should do is to get hold of a camera and some film and make a movie of any kind at all. I think that's killer advice at the end of this show. Find care, take care.